We come this morning to our sermon passage. It's the end of Exodus chapter 2, printed for you there in your bulletin. Just two verses this morning. It's concerned about them. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Having read this, your word, we thank you for it. That in it we get a glimpse of who you are, revelation what you're doing in this world, and so we get a glimpse of who we are in you. So this morning, open the eyes of our hearts to see your glory and the beauty of Jesus. Open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts that we might be moved to love you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are a handful of axioms in our culture, sayings that kind of everybody says, everybody kind of knows, and we just... Assume they're undoubtedly true. So I'm going to say a few of them, see if we know them. There's nothing certain in life but what? Death and taxes. That's one. A penny saved is what? A penny earned. Or saying like an absence does what to the heart? It makes the heart grow fonder. Those are all sayings we've heard, ones we've probably said, some we've stores, home goods, or uh, what's the one I'm thinking of? Hobby Lobby. But there's another one this morning that I want to mention, I want to bring up and put to the test of our passage, and it's this one. History repeats itself. You've said it, I've said it, we've all said it. And there's a reason why history repeats itself is such a common saying. It's because we look around ourselves and we see the same kind of things happen. It's usually bad things. We're usually talking about the wrong in our world. History repeats itself, and people never learn. Now, depending on how it's understood, it's a saying that carries with it an outlook that can drain hope from our hearts. That what we see around us is all that will ever be. That history's just going to repeat itself. And, and doesn't Scripture kind of say something similar? If you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read it, it's the uh, it's a profoundly dark piece of writing, if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, and it has this refrain over and over. It says, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. An ancient Hebrew way of saying history repeats itself. Nothing new. Or think of the words of the song of lament we just sang. It's pulled from Psalm 13. And how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? Will history just repeat itself in my life? Be frustration after frustration, no end in sight. How long? So today, what I want to do is look at that saying and kind of put it to the test in a sense. The test of these two verses that we just read at the end of Exodus 2. To see if that comes up. So let's start by looking at our first point. It's this God hears. God hears. In verse 23, we find out that the king of Egypt has died. The Pharaoh that had uh, put the, the bondage and the slavery on the Israelites has passed away. There's a new Pharaoh on the scene. And at this point, the Israelites have been in Egypt for a very long time, and they've been oppressed for decades upon decades. And so there may be a pause. The oppression continues. History repeats itself. And it seems like God is silent. It seems like God is silent. If he's out there, he doesn't care. Now, we've been through the first two chapters of Exodus, and 
one of the things I noticed as I read through is if you read through Exodus 1 and 2, you'll see we don't really see God much at all. doesn't describe God acting. doesn't describe God doing much of anything. We see grand actions of Pharaoh. We see Pharaoh commanding laws into place. We see Pharaoh doing wicked deeds. And when he speaks, things happen. So Pharaoh looks incredibly powerful. We see the Hebrew midwives resisting him. We see Moses born. We see Moses growing up. But what about God? In the first two chapters of Exodus, the only thing we see God doing, the only thing it specifically says that God does, is he blesses the two Hebrew midwives with families after they resist Pharaoh. So in this, these decades of work, we see the power of Pharaoh at work, and we see God blessing two families, or that's what it seems like. If anything, the situation here looks like the power of God cannot match the power of Pharaoh. And here's this new Pharaoh, and history's just repeating itself, and God is silent. And so verse 23, we read that the people groan. They groan, they cry out for help. Note that it doesn't say they groan to anybody in particular. The picture we have here is people crying out in desperation, crying out for anyone to hear. And in this most desperate moment of crying out in distress, we read these words of incredible hope in verse 24, and God heard. God heard their groaning. Their cries are not just words spoken. They're crying out, they're praying. It's not just a therapeutic exercise of expressing their frustration. Their groaning is not in vain, it's not empty. They are heard, and they are heard by God. Now, this isn't just describing God having the ability to hear. Don't picture God having ears, and he's been oblivious, and now he finally hears. It's not describing God having the ability to hear like we are going to hear a train go by any minute now, as we do every Sunday. What the hearing here is, is an intimate hearing. It's a hearing that leads to action. Now, the Israelites had surely wondered about their situation. Like David in Psalm 13, they cried out, Will you forget us forever? I'm sure. Will history just repeat itself? Are our families stuck in this slavery forever? Now, they're about to get their answer, and they're about to get it in dramatic fashion. That's the rest of the book of Exodus. And now, the original audience to which Exodus was written, I'm surely it was thinking similar things. The people to whom this book was written were the grandchildren of the people referenced here that were groaning, that were crying out. And they had heard the promises related to the land that God was leading them to. That he was leading them out of Egyptian slavery into the promised land, a place flowing with milk and honey. But because of their parents' unbelief of God's goodness, all they had known for decades was wandering in the wilderness. Wondering if that's all they would ever know. And this passage was spoken powerfully to them, and it speaks to us as well. Our prayers, friends, are not simply words we say to feel better. As I said, the value of prayer isn't just that it's therapeutic and it helps our emotions. The fundamental conviction at the heart of our faith is that God is a personal God who is not silent in the face of injustice and wrong, and He is not deaf to our cries. God hears. They are heard by the God who has called us to be his people. And you are heard. You are not missed. You are not overlooked. 
But while there's some good in a person who hears your groans and difficulty and a friend that's willing to kind of be a, a shoulder to cry on, this passage doesn't say that the Israelites were calling out for somebody to hear them. It says they cried out for help. And our passage doesn't just stop by telling us that God heard them. It tells us our second point, that God remembers. God remembers. Verse 24 tells us why God has heard them. God did not hear them because their prayers were super well worded. He didn't hear them because they were sinless people. That's not the picture we get at all. In fact, the, the picture we get of the Israelites in Egypt is that they had been thoroughly inundated with everything that Egypt was about. The evil of that empire that had oppressed them had not just wrecked their bodies, it had wrecked their souls. In fact, we get a picture later on of Israelites who had taken on the worship of the false gods of Egypt. Because what's the first thing we know about the golden calf incident as they are led out of uh, Egyptian slavery and God's giving them the Ten Commandments, establishing them as a nation. The first thing they do is create a God in the image of the Egyptian gods. So we don't get a picture of a sinless people. In many ways, they had forgotten and disregarded God's promise. But if they weren't heard because they were super righteous, and if they weren't heard because their prayers were especially impressive, why did God hear them? Because as it says, he remembered. He remembered his covenant promise that he would not leave this world, his creation that he made very good and loves, he would not leave it to be marred by the fallout and the reality of sin. He remembered his covenant and what is this covenant? What is this covenant? Well, specifically, it's a covenant. It's a promise to Abraham. And we've talked about this a lot, but this is always in the background of what God's doing in Scripture. A promise to Abraham to bless the family of Abraham, not just to give them stuff so they can say, we're the best family, but through that family to bless every family on earth. Specifically, through that family to call forth a Redeemer that would free the bonded, free this world from the, its bondage to sin. A redeemer that would destroy the power of sin and establish his kingdom. A kingdom that would not be like the kingdom of Egypt. A kingdom that would not oppress and put down people, but a kingdom where righteousness and justice would reign. Now we gain a lot of clarification about this promise in the rest of Scripture. And we find out that the fulfillment of this promise, of this covenant, ultimately, is Jesus. Jesus through, is the one through who Abraham, the man of faith, has many descendants, as the New Testament talks about. That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And that the only begotten Son of God brings many sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. And that Jesus is the one who guarantees the ultimate promise line. Not a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but the promised land of a new heavens and new earth where the curse of sin is rolled back, where all that is wrong is made right, where all that is, the curse of sin is undone. Nothing short of a new creation. Through the covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob referenced here, realized ultimately in Jesus, God's very creation purposes will be brought to bear. 
God did not create this to be a place of suffering. This world is not supposed to be a place where we inhabit and disease happens and infertility happens and car wrecks happen. This is not the way things are supposed to be. But in Jesus, we have a promise that God is at work to make all things new. And the summation of God's work, the consummation of it, we find in Revelation 21, if you turn to the end of the book, it's kind of like cheating to turn to Revelation 21, right? You flip to the end of the book to see how it ends. But what do we see in Revelation 21? God's dwelling place, to quote, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now why am I flipping the, to Revelation 21? We're here at Exodus 2, right? Well, because of this. Remember, Exodus 2 is the beginning of God enacting his promise to redeem. He made the promise to Abraham. Exodus 2 is God showing up on the scene and saying, I've not forgotten that promise. We're pressing play. It's him enacting his promise to redeem. And we are meant to read these words in verse 24, that God has remembered his covenant. And we are meant to rejoice in our hearts because God has not only heard the cry of his people, he has remembered what he said he's going to do. He has not forgotten that. He has not forgotten that. He has made promises and he's going to keep them. But our text doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just tell us that God hears and God remembers. It leaves us with one more statement that we cannot pass over, which is our third point. God knows. God knows. Look at verse 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. Or as it says in our translation here, God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. He was concerned about them. Now concern or know, depending on your translation, is a broad word. But God knows. What does it mean in this passage? You know, God knew their situation, but we already knew that from this first point that he hears. God knew his covenant. We know that because he remembered, right? God knew them. God knew what he was about to do. He knew all that comes after our passage, not just him calling Moses, which is what happens in Exodus 3, and working through him to deliver these people from slavery. He didn't just know that he would lead Israel into the real wilderness to give them his gracious instruction. He didn't just know that he would give them the promised land and that he would redeem them time and time again in his grace, even though they didn't deserve it. God knew his plan. As we just talked about that, ultimately Jesus will come into this world to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father. That Jesus would live a life, and in every way that we fail, he would succeed. In every way that we choose selfishness and we choose disregard of God and others, Jesus did not. He chose the will of the Father. He chose to regard others and to care for their concerns, to care for us. And that Jesus would live that perfect life. And that Jesus would come and he would die the death that sin deserves. And all the judgment that the sin of our world deserves, the wrath of God would be poured out on Jesus on the cross. So it would not be poured out on us. He knew that Jesus would rise from the grave, defeating all of his and our enemies. He knew that God would build his church from a handful of terrified women and men into a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God knew us. 
God knew us. Because, friends, we're not reading some interesting story from some time in the past. We are reading about our covenant-keeping God acting on behalf of His people in a work of redemption that is still ongoing. Something that includes us. God's knowledge, God's concern is God's action. And as we said, His promise is sure. The promise is that, as we sang in His mercy is more, that our sins, no matter how many they are, His mercy is more. They outweigh. His grace is stronger than our sin. His love for us is older than our sin and will last much longer than any struggle of sin that we will have in our own hearts or the scars of people's sin against us. His love outlasts the frustrations of this life and the power of sin have a termination point. That's what we see in Jesus. That there's a period on the end of the sentence. That yes, we live in a world where it feels like history repeats itself. Suffering after suffering after suffering. But Jesus tells us that there's a period on the end of that sentence. And the story keeps going after that. But the story that keeps going after that is the profound love of God for us. The immeasurable riches that God has set to show us into eternity. So history repeats itself. We've seen this morning that God, God hears, God remembers, and God knows, or He's concerned. So let's come back to our statement at the beginning. History repeats itself. We've, we've in a sense, submitted it to the scrutiny of this passage. So is it, a, is it a statement that's worth getting rid of? Should we stop saying history repeats itself? I say no. I say no. Because history does repeat itself. Yes, life is often difficult. Humans are creatures of habit. So we do all the same things over and over again. But there's another aspect that I want to add to the phrase. Because as I said, history repeats itself. We usually say it when something's wrong, right? I want to add this to our thinking about that statement. Remember, we serve a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So history does repeat itself. Because our God who never changes in his love and affection for us will keep his promises time and time again. History does repeat itself because he redeems and sets his grace and affections on us day after day. Has grace fitted for our need right now, today? Has forgiveness for every sin we commit? Never casts us out. We find his mercies new every morning. History does repeat itself because our God is intent to love us over and over and over again. Until what is spoken about in Revelation 21, which I'm going to read again, will become the reality of our experience where this, the grace of God, will be the very air we breathe. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And He who was seated on the throne, this is Jesus' friend, said this, I am making everything new. We need these words. We need this truth. I need to know that God is making everything new. I need to know that God is making me new. 
I need to know that the desperation that I experience, that you experience in this world is not all there is and all that there ever will be. I need to know that history repeats itself because God does not change in His love for me. So perhaps you're here this morning in my closing thoughts and you've prayed and you've groaned in the frustrations of this life and you've said, how long will you forget me forever? Know that you're hurt. Know that your cries do not fall on deaf ears. Know that the prayers you pray in your room don't stop at the ceiling. You're heard. Know that all of God's promises are sure in Jesus. All that is His by right and that righteous life He lived is yours by grace. He gives it all to you. Know that He is committed to shaping you into the image of Jesus, to bless you in the midst of struggle, and to deliver you not only from the penalty of sin and forgiveness, but from His very power. And eventually, one day in the new heavens and new earth, from His very presence. Know that long after your struggle with sin is over, what remains for you is the profound love of God that cannot be measured. God hears you. God remembers His promise. God knows and loves you. Now, we don't see things made right currently, but we see Jesus through whom all God's promises are sure. So when the way is difficult and lonely, and when the struggle weighs you down, when you're tired of praying and you're groaning and you're being, hold on to this promise. The same Jesus that was put to death on a cross rose from the dead, not just to prove that he was strong. The resurrection wasn't just some magic trick to impress us with the strength of, and power of God. His resurrection opens up the doorway for a new creation. His resurrection for us means hope. It means life for us. And since the resurrection was kicking a doorway on the other side of death open for us to walk into the bright light of God's love for us, it means this, that even in the middle of the, the most difficult of circumstances, we can know what awaits those who place their faith in Him, what awaits us, love for all eternity, love, unmitigated, without mixed motives and without ulterior agendas, love and the difficulties in this world, even the most torrid, even the most intense, will pass. Sin will be with finality overcome, but the love of God and Jesus Christ for us never 